Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and we've got a special episode for you this week. Uh, in this episode, Emily uh, interviews Arthur Jones, who is the director of a documentary called The Six, which is a documentary about the six uh, Chinese men who were on the Titanic and whose story, by and large, has not been told in terms of the kind of broad array of stories that have been told about the Titanic, one of the most sort of famous and much dramatized and documented events of the 20th century. And so they talk a little bit about the documentary itself, about, you know, filming it and where the idea for it came from and the experience of tackling a story that you know, most people within the sort of community of Titanic enthusiasts don't seem to have a huge amount of interest in, but also about the connections that that story has to sort of uh, broader ideas about the nature of society and class and gender, the huge shadow that uh, James Cameron's Titanic casts over culture and and how uh, that also relates to the story The Six is telling in, in interesting ways. It's a really fascinating discussion about a very good an interesting documentary so you'll be hearing that in a few minutes uh, and obviously since it's just me uh, talking at the moment we won't have much in the way of our usual news segments but also it was a quiet week i think really the only big thing i have on my list for news is that there's going to be a new predator movie and i'm quite kind of quite excited about it because uh, it's being directed by dan trachtenberg who did 10 cloverfield lane which i think is still one of the best sort of like big mainstream genre movies of the last decade and also you know it's going to be set 300 years in the past and it's going to be um it's going to have a native american uh, protagonist and it just sounds like you know someone doing something interesting and new with the predator franchise that is notably different than just having them fight people with guns <laughs> again so uh, i'm very excited about it. that's the only news that uh, really kind of leaps out to me so without further ado i'll pass you over to emily and arthur and i'll be back at the end uh, for a quick recommendation segment So I'm delighted to be here with Arthur Jones, director of The Six. Arthur, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you. Good. Um, thank you so much for passing on this screener. I have so many questions and thoughts and feelings because it's exactly the kind of film that evokes all of that. But I think I'm going to start quite simply and ask you how you came to the story of The Six. Well, um... It had sort of popped up a couple of times as a subject. Um, Stephen Schwankert, who co-created The Six with me, and then we were joined by our producer, Lortong. Um, but initially, Stephen and I had been working on The Six the same way that we'd worked on the last film that we made together, which was The Poseidon Project. So we'd sort of done it very low-key, very um, just the two of us, really. So Stephen was researching. I was filming him at the beginning just on little cameras running around you know wireless mic on him and an onboard on the camera and stuff so we were just doing that and i was charting the progress in that first film of him looking for this lost submarine that had, that, had, that had sunk off the coast of china and uh so we 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 were doing that and i think while we were doing that we were 
half thinking that what we were doing was sort of creating a, a sort of way of doing history related documentaries that didn't involve the sort of portentous, deep voiced man, usually, you know, big voiceover, you know, describing something in that kind of voice of God, you know, this is what happened on this date and so on. The thing about history docs is they tend to be category, they tend to be thought of as a fairly conservative format because they fit into that, the notion of, well, I guess to be completely frank about it, you know, it's sort of middle-aged man's TV or something, you know, it's sort of military TV. It's, you know, what happened in this war and that war. But that that area doesn't really interest me at all. Um, what I'm interested in is investigative history. I mean, history does fascinate me, but, you know, it's not my total output in documentaries. But we had such a good time making that one, and it felt like a sort of calling card for maybe trying it out again. So towards the end of Poseidon Project, as we were finishing, Stephen said to me a couple of times, have you thought about the fact that maybe our next project could be about the Chinese guys on Titanic? And to be honest, my initial reaction was, oh, I guess I just hadn't heard of those guys. And I thought, uh, another big maritime history one. I'm not sure I want to do that. Well, what inspired me was I would ask people around me, you know, I mean, I'm in Shanghai most of the time and. And I would say to Chinese friends, you know, what, what I'm thinking about this story, Titanic Chinese people. And they would say, what is that like a movie? Or, and I would say, no, no, it's a documentary. You know, there were Chinese guys on Titanic. And they would say, were there Chinese guys on Titanic? We had no idea. And Stephen and I had both been in China in 97, 98, when James Cameron's film Titanic came out. And it was such a big hit here. And for various reasons, it had a lot of resonance here and people love the film and massive cues and, and it still resonates. It's still a sort of a touch point for a big, large scale, romantic film. It was such a success that I just thought it was baffling that people didn't know about the story of the Chinese guys on Titanic. I thought it must be something that they would know about, but just had somehow discounted. It wasn't very, but just no one knew anything about it. And then as we reached out, it became clear that the Titanic sort of, you know, the Titanic community, you know, in speech marks, the people who obsess about it, they're sort of, in a way, they're sort of ufologists, you know, the UFO guys who, and again, it is mostly guys who obsess about Titanic and every detail of it. And they didn't really know anything about it. And when we reached out to them initially, they, they actually was a lot of pushback and they would say, well, you know, I don't think you're going to find anything about them. I mean, we've looked at this issue and that there's no, there's nothing to find. So for all of those reasons, it began to appeal more and more. Stephen um, uses Titanic as a metaphor a lot in shipwreck. So he'll often refer, oh, this is a shipwreck. It's a bit like Titanic in this sense, or you'll get a refrain. We were actually looking at a shipwreck story in China, just in the middle between Poseidon and the Six, the shipwreck called Jiangya. Um, that had sunk with a massive loss of loss of loss of life in in off the coast of China in 1948. We were looking at that as a story at the time, and we kept referring to it as China's Titanic or the Chinese Titanic. So it comes up so often that this initial feeling I had of like, well, oh, I don't really want to do a maritime history story, or oh, Titanic, that's a bit kind of weird and mainstream. I'm not sure what can I add to that. Gradually got eroded by the fact it just was just an enormous sort of Pandora's box of issues that were fascinating to explore. So striking that you say that about the lack of the voice of God or the kind of 
white colonialist eye, I suppose, on what is the, even though the sort of nature of Titanic, the ship itself, it has become a cultural reference, like you say, everything else refers back to the Titanic because that is a point of reference everyone can come to. But then why is that? Because like you say, there are other shipwrecks with maybe equivalent, if not larger, loss of life. Yeah, I think I think Titanic is about I it's I'd, yeah, I'd have to double check. I'm sure I'm wrong, but it's sort of number fifteen on the list of the most fatal shipwrecks or something like that. So it's not number one. It's far from number one. No, that's interesting, and I wonder how much of that is because of Titanic the film, which I love because again, as a cultural landmark, mm-hmm. you know, like you say, the romance, the kind of spectacle of it. I, you know. And early on in the film, um, you show some footage of the film's release in China. And I remember that sense of like everyone going to see it because it seemed to just speak to everyone globally. It is worth unpacking, actually, why Titanic does have that place. Um, And I think, you know, I've come to some some understanding of that over this project. I had seen Titanic back in the day and and enjoyed it. I thought it was a, you know, well-crafted, well-put-together film. It's an amazing achievement, you know. And then, but then I obviously watched it a lot more as we made our film because for various reasons we revisited the film. I think when we look at it now, it's a peculiar historical artifact is Titanic. So, so at the time, why was it so spectacular? Well, the first thing is that you have to sort of bust this myth that Titanic was famous before it sailed. It wasn't. It, it was not. It was actually not very well covered by the media. It was technically the largest heaviest ship that had been made to that point but it was only slightly larger than its sister ship I'm, I'm a few tons larger than its sister ship that was to all intents and purposes identical so the sister ship of of of, um, of titanic was called olympic and it was it was the same ship essentially it had sailed the year before so all the media had been attracted the year before by by the sister ship titanic was a sort of after thought if you like. I mean, it was it was the same ship repeated. They could get more people across and all the rest of it. It didn't attract much media attention, but it sank at a certain moment in history. A few, you know, important to that was Marconi's invention of the of the you know wireless communication meant that it was essentially when you look back, really the first example of a global news story that you were able to find out about within about 24 hours anywhere in the, in the world. So it was in the Hong Kong papers the next day. It was it was being covered and discussed. So it hits a really interesting moment in the media. And and I think because of that, it had a, a sort of echo that lasted a long time. It was it was therefore not just a massive shipwreck that at the time was the, you know, the largest shipwreck at the time, though it's been surpassed. But it had this incredible noise to it. It generated a lot of buzz. It was the first time people had been able to share a story like that globally. It also had on board some very wealthy people. Um, I've been told several times, because this is another thing we sometimes think, oh, it's an unbelievable misfortune that these incredibly famous people were on board. And actually, that's, that's again, a misconception. Most of those big cruise liners, actually, that's the wrong word, passenger ships, in fact, what they essentially were migrant vessels, because the majority of people on board were migrants heading to the U.S. to to settle there. But because of the nature of transport at that time, those large vessels always had the rich and famous on board. They ha- they always had a first class. 
because there was no other way for them to get back and forth. So there were inevitably always on a massive ship like that going to be some very wealthy people. Titanic was no exception. Um, and, it, and it wasn't exceptional in that. And then I think the other important thing about it is that unlike some of the other enormous shipwrecks, many of them bigger than Titanic, there's something about that two and a half hours of it sitting in the water, that sense of, do I get in a lifeboat? Do I not? Do I have a chance to get in? Do I not? And the way that we frame discussions about who has a right to survive, who is, well, it's something that I return to again and again, a fascinating subject, I think, because one of the things that's always perplexed me about Titanic is the way that even in the 21st century, we continue to think of it in, in general, in terms of Edwardian values. So we look at that ship and we'll talk about the, the famous women and children first, which actually women and children first was only applied on one half of the ship. It was it was women and children only on the other side of the ship where no men were allowed in most of the lifeboats, even if they had empty seats. Um, so that concept, women and children first, and we take that as if it's just a, a thing we all know. The women and children first, it's obvious. But I mean, I've thought about this. I can't name a disaster in my lifetime. In fact, in probably the 20, 30 years before I was born, let's go back to the, the, the 50s or something. I can't think of another example where we use the phrase women and children first to judge people in the midst, in the middle of a, a, an enormous catastrophe that's going on, a massive disaster with lots of human life. I mean, do we ever get, do we ever pour over the awful black box tapes of planes going down and say, well, it sounds like two passengers are having a fight in the background. One of them's clearly an absolute villain. You know, I mean, it's just absurd that we do that. You know, somehow it's that delayed sinking of the ship, though, the two and a half hours that makes us think it's OK to judge them. But it's always been an odd thing to me. It's sort of frozen in time. We're 21st century people. And we look at that ship and we still think it's OK to talk about somebody being a bit of a git or actually a complete bastard, you know, for getting in the ship. It's such an absurd way of viewing it. And of course, our information is so limited when we make those judgments. I think it's desperately unfair. And um, and it's been sort of frozen in time. We it's been it's not been unpacked in 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 those terms. I think ever, which is another reason why I thought well, this is something that needs looking at from a different perspective, not the perspective of, you know, as somebody said to me, what's the diameter of the ashtrays in the second class smoking lounge? Because that to me doesn't really that's not important to me. Although um, it's nice that there are people looking at that. To me, it felt more like there's a cultural moment. It's still got a resonance in our culture. Do we all think about Titanic the wrong way? Was something else really going on? Why don't we frame it as a corporate disaster, for example? Why don't we still, why don't we frame it as White Star Line being co a corporate disaster? Why do we not blame the government for not imposing the correct safety standards at that time? Why do we not, I'm not suggesting we should still keep thinking about and judging them as those ways, but we've never talked about it in those ways. So it seems odd to me that our whole framing is about who was a good guy, and it's mainly guys, because women are somehow passive in this story as well. They're also just put into a lifeboat, and men are supposed to just, you know, just die, really. That's the, that's the honourable thing to do is just to die. And it's a very strange thing. So I thought it was more and more worthy of unpacking as I, as I looked at it. Completely. There's such a human fallacy where I think there's so many points I want to touch upon from what you've said there, but in terms of like intersectionality and also the other. 
and that we can other these humans in the past, like you say, they're frozen in time and that our morality is almost like a survivorship bias by proxy where it's like, oh, well, we would have done something differently. But I can't help but bring everything back to the current situation with the pandemic and what mm. you were saying there in terms of it being a corporate disaster. And it's like, well, through various points of um, the pandemic where it's fallen to personal responsibility, when, but surely this is a public health issue and why are we blaming each other and our neighbours instead of being like, well, kind of top down and, and this kind of thing. And I was wondering, in terms of the, like, the bringing, like, un, like thawing out the Titanic and bringing it back to the present moment, and all of these elements of, like, intersectionality, class, did you find much resistance in terms of the timeline of the idea? Because I wonder whether you'd have been able to make a film like this 10 15 years ago or find the interest because obviously these themes feel incredibly current and i was wondering what your journey in terms of making the film and kind of not just financing but kind of anticipating the response because mm. obviously this is something that like i'm absolutely on board with mm -mm. sorry probably a, i didn't mean that pun <laughs> it's a great pun you don't know how many times it's uh, come up in the in the time where we talk about it's like how have i ended up saying on board with or you know even worse there's far worse things you don't want to you don't want to know the number of times we've said this idea is dead in the water or something i mean it's it's awful i mean it's it's awful i'm embarrassed to say it but we're you know as human civilization like the fact that we've you know that that being nautical was the first way we got to kind of really yes. travel and, and interact with each other but yeah i'm fascinated about you and Stephen and then your team obviously kind of worked yeah. on the idea and, and how responsive were other people to your interest? Well, it starts in, as an internal debate because, I mean, uh, and it's, you know, Stephen's initial fascination is Titanic. He is someone who's obsessed with in a really fascinating way that makes him, for me, a great subject. You know, I, of course, I secretly in this Stephen is a big part you know in in some sense is my main subject here I'm filming it through his story and through the story of the researchers so their feelings of ambivalence towards an idea or or their feelings of oh we're going the wrong way here or can we look at it that way to me are really interesting I don't I, I don't need to put a you know to dot all the i's and cross the t's in this I mean I think sometimes the the ambiguity, the uncertainty is what I'm trying to capture. And the fact that not everybody thinks about this in the same way is, is fine. You know, I think that's fine. And it's, it re reflects the kind of film I'm trying to, I was from the beginning trying to create, but you know, Stephen's initial fascination where is with, uh, Titanic itself as a, as a, as a, as a metal floating object in the sea, a, a vessel and the survivors and the route they take. And that, that was, I think what took us, into this project you know that was that was there always we had to answer that question because if you don't answer those sort of physical questions about how did they escape and and how do they survive and which lifeboat they got into then i think you don't you don't build the credibility and you don't take people along on that journey it seems like you've sort of gone in with an agenda but in the background to this i was always and and, and the key I, I was always fascinated with how this began to 
we could use this to look at those issues that you've just touched, those issues and more issues you just touched on, you know, issues of responsibility, issues of the intersection between, uh, you know, the uh, passengers or everyday people and, and the corporations that guide them through their lives, the governments that sit above that. I always wanted to talk about those issues. At the heart of this was a particular moment that fascinated me and in a, and I made it, you know, deliberately by the end, once we once we were had all the footage and we were constructing the film, I made it the, the middle of the film. In a way, it is the turning point, which is New York. It's, you know, Carpathia takes them to, to New York. And I knew there was something that had happened in New York that in a way was the reason I made this film, which was for me less about which life work they got into and stuff, which is in itself interesting. But, you know, there was that moment in New York, which for me is everyone, 705, six survivors, arrive at dock number 5354 in Manhattan and they are they're allowed to not stop at Ellis Island I mean that's something we didn't know originally everybody kept saying oh they everybody went to Ellis Island they all had they, they didn't stop at Ellis Island they were give a, given a, a pass to not go through the trauma of having to get off and fill in forms and all that kind of thing because they'd gone through Titanic they landed directly at the docks they were met by thousands of people um, officials and so on and they were essentially all looked after and taken either to hotels or they had family picking them up they were taken to hospitals and they all went off and it took a while to get them off and people were on stretches and things and this and the six chinese guys were left on board i mean it's just absolutely extraordinary they were they were left on board um they apparently had been essentially uh, huddled down in in the third class uh, quarter of the of carpathia for the three or four days it took to get to new york no, from all we know, no one spoke to them. No one said anything. But we know that rumors about them had already been circulating both on board and in the media in New York, especially, but also in the UK, especially. Those two countries had, had really were at the, the heart of doing this. And no one did anything for them. And they were essentially in custody. And the following morning, immigration officials arrived and escorted them across New York. We, we saw the route. It's across the tip of Manhattan to the other side of Manhattan, where they were put on board SS Aneta and they left that afternoon. And that was it. And nobody interviewed them. Nobody said anything. And at the heart of that was something I thought was fascinating because early on there was a debate about this. There were some people who said, yeah, but I mean, they always knew that was going to happen. They weren't allowed to go into New York. I mean, you know, that they, they knew they were going to Aneta, so they just they were just doing what they had initially planned. And I said, well, hold on. That The thing is, that, that may be true that that's what they were supposed to do. Although, actually, it's more complicated than that. We found out later. But I'll set that aside. Let's say they were. But they'd just been through this enormous disaster. I mean, two in three people had died. Two of their friends had died. And you're saying, oh, well, they knew the law. They knew what they were getting themselves in for. Oh, what, you can't offer to put them in a hotel for a night? You can't check that they're okay physically? You can't not print stories about them in the media. That, that And here's we touch on this very important issue of how they were, you know, as it's described, you know, I learned this word in Chinese doing this part, you know, they became tajra, we say in Chinese, they became the other. They were essentially a vessel for uh, describing the way in which foreign men, not, not Anglo-Saxon men, had acted on board. Certainly not white men. Maybe one or two white men who were real villains, an absolute villain. You know, but the rest of the white, you know, the rest of the men on board were, were actually like absolute gentlemen. Uh, but the foreign men, 
quite different. Um, and it really was like that. The Italians, uh, uh, um, Irish at that time, there were a lot of people from the Middle East uh, there. There were Lebanese there. There were some Syrians. And they were, they were, you know, generally speaking, referred to as if they were the most awful type of people to have had on board, that they were the ones messing up the lifeboats, that they weren't queuing up in an orderly fashion and so on. Um, and so that we began to look at this issue of both, well, hold on, whether or not they knew that was the law, there are lots of other issues that swirl around that. That law, incidentally, is not just some random law they ought to have known about. That That's the Chinese exclusion law. It's the first law that America applies to any ethnic or national group that says specifically, you are not allowed to immigrate to America. You are not allowed to set foot on America. If you're a Chinese sailor, you can only work down the coasts and in the wired off sections of docks where you're allowed and you're basically not allowed to step off the boat. I mean, it's it, this is not just some law that they knew about. This is not arriving at Heathrow and, you know, and, and you know, and, and not knowing you didn't have a visa in your passport or something. This is this is a specifically ethnically targeted law that targeted anyone that was either from China. They could at the time they just said Chinese, but that actually meant ethnically Chinese people from Malaysia who weren't ba Malaysians weren't banned from going in. But if you look Chinese, if your background was Chinese, you weren't allowed in either. So it was the most pernicious law that was being applied. And then there was no humanitarian sort of a valve on that to say, well, yes, except if someone's just been through the most awful experience you could possibly imagine and had people who we don't know if they're not family or friends or brothers who've died in the disaster with them. Now we're going to escort them across. And not only that, we're going to kick them up the bomb on the way out. In the, in the media, there were stories in some of the New York press that said, essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm making it no worse than it is, than it was. They essentially said, don't worry, good people of America. We won't let them in, the Chinese guys who did these awful things we know about. But just to be clear about the awful things they did on board, most of the rumors about them, that they had dressed as women to get on board uh, um, uh, lifeboats, that they had sort of pushed women and children out the way, that they had hidden in the lifeboat and only appeared afterwards when it, when it launched, or even that they were stowaways on Titanic and had no tickets. All of these four major kind of um, uh, allegations made against them were essentially constructed in the days after Titanic had sunk, but before Carpathia had arrived. No one had interviewed them, and there was no telegraphic communication between Carpathia and New York. So they were just literally made up, just made up. I mean, it's just the whole thing is so awful when you think about it. And then they were put on the ship and sent off and disappeared. So they were, they were both denigrated, left and never, ever asked again about what had happened. It's just the most extraordinary injustice in the middle of Titanic. And for that to just sit there for 109 years and for no one to question if it. And if you ever raised it, and we had this pushback from, as I say, some in this more, uh, in this sort of Titanic uh, enthusiast community, which includes some historians and, 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 and so on. And a lot of people who do some good work. They, we were told very early on, essentially, you're going to have to, you know, brace yourselves for the fact that these guys just did some, some horrible things. So if you've come here to sort of be an apologist for the Chinese or an apologist for China or something, then um, 
you know, you're going to get a lot of pushback. And um, it was at that point, Steve and I used to have this conversation where I would say, I would say, and Stephen would agree, you know, if if we're pissing these guys off, we must be doing something right in this project. <laughs> and luckily, that was the last time there was any anti-Asian hate from America ever again. <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to still draw parallels and how saddening and maddening it is that, like you say, the idea of uh, a major tragic traumatic event is just a blip like a delay on a journey that was already going to happen and yeah the the othering that humans do like staggers me and your yeah. your point about um moving away from the almost, can't think of a better word off the top of my head, but almost like strategic or like tracking the placement of everyone in lifeboats and all this kind of stuff. Moving away from that, the scene that really struck me that you depict is Stephen in a kind of reconstruction of not even the conditions of the water in the Titanic, because it's actually too dangerous to replicate it exactly. And he's in... He's submerged in 12 degree Celsius That's right. water for, what, 20 minutes? Oh, no, no, 40, 42 minutes or something. Yeah. That's it. I think I remember that there's a point where he's encouraged to sort of try and swim around. But he comes out of 12 degree water and he's in the early stages of hypothermia. And it, That's right. it just staggers me because I think sometimes we can kind of gloss over through saying, oh yeah, well, I mean, it's terrible. But then when you look at the detail of the physical effects of what mm. in the water would be, and again, almost just, and, and, to, and to see someone like that, of whoever, yeah. and, to, and to then say, yeah, but they somehow deserved it, or they're not the right kind of people to save. Um, again, questions that unfortunately are very much prevalent in, in the sort of discourse at the moment. Well, the, the underlying this is just a simple thing we should throw into the mix here. Just to bear in mind when we talk about Titanic is that most, and I say most, uh, almost all, barring a couple of the lifeboats, left with empty seats. So how on earth was somebody stealing somebody's seats? And just to be clear, the evidence is... Uh, there were there were women and children who died in some number on board. Men died a lot more, but women and children also died in significant numbers on board, especially third class. It was not, it appears, because people were taking their places on the decks and pushing in front of them. What was fundamentally happening is, again, it's something that actually Cameron covers this very well in the film, but it's something that when we think about it, it's hard to think of. What was happening was, and again, we got a, You've got to think of these things in like um, societal terms and not in individual terms, because what was happening was not an individual choice about, well, this first class guy is worth more than this third class guy. So it wasn't it wasn't as direct as that. It was third class was on the upper decks. They were near the lifeboats. And so they were just the easiest ones to bring out on the deck. So they brought them out first. They brought them out first. Some of the women on the uh on first class were put in the boats initially, which the first lifeboats were launched less than half full. We look at that now, it seems awful. In fact, what was happening was they didn't really fully understand that it was sinking at that point. So they were sort of just putting people in, getting them ready. Then they lowered them to the water and they said, well, if, you know, we'll put, put more people in. 
if it becomes clear it's getting worse. And then those lifeboats ended up moving further and further away because it, as it became more evident what was happening and the potential massive loss of life, the lifeboats were scared that if they were too close, they would get pulled in, either by the sinking or later by just the enormous number of people in the water. And the other thing to remember is that the reason for the rush at the end that we see in Cameron's film, which is pretty accurate, is that third class were being held in these sort of waiting rooms slash smoking rooms at the end, one end of the of the ship. Um, again, when we see this portrayed dramatically, it's sort of like locking them in a room. It, it wasn't, there's no real evidence for that. What it was more to do with actually was a sort of assumption that third class was sort of, they would just wait. They would wait, you know, and then at the, the right, it wasn't that people were holding there and saying, you guys are going to die, but we're not going to tell you. They were, they were being held there because there was a sort of natural order to the way that things played out. First of all, for quite a while, oh, it's not going to sink. Don't worry about it. Then, oh, we've already got people on deck. Let's load them in first. And then, oops, it's really late. And, oh, there's no lifeboats left. And we haven't let them out yet. So it's more a kind of internalized version of a class system. It's not a specific, don't let those guys survive. It's more of a kind of, it's just the way it was done. First class would get loaded in first. They had the more comfortable treatment. Some of the first class men said, no, don't worry, my dear, you go out, I'll, I'll wait for you here. And in the early stages, it seemed like that's probably what was gonna happen. And I imagine for some of the first class men, they were being brave, but they were also signaling bravery. That's the right thing to do, to say, to actually think, oh, it's probably not going to go down. You you get on board, you know, and, also, and, I, and I will get in at some point, you know. But but it became apparent over the, probably about an hour in, it became apparent it really was going down. And then they started to move people out. And so there's this escalating madness on board. And so right at the end, there is a rush of third class with women, and they don't get on lifeboats. Why? There aren't any lifeboats left. They've all gone already. So it's not a question of holding back women. Most of the evidence suggests that any women and children on deck were loaded into lifeboats. Anyone who got to the deck was loaded in. There weren't men pushing women out the way. And as I say, there were still plenty of empty seats. So that was what was going on. So I always think this can't be identified, this can't be analyzed and taken apart in terms of, well, this officer had a gun and fired it and therefore that particular passenger didn't get in or was shot or did do that. You've got, you know, I mean, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's interesting to do. But I think historically, it's more interesting to look at it in terms of what were the assumptions? What are the built-in prejudices that make people act the way they do in those moments? And people who would not have at the time, if you'd said, and I, I, to be honest, I don't know how much the word racism was kicking around in 1912, but let's say we could find a way to express it, maybe bigotry against people. I think you'd find most people would genuinely believe they weren't thinking that in those ways. They were, what they were doing was parroting what was being said. So someone somewhere saw a guy with dark hair being a little aggressive and getting on. They would have said, I saw an Italian guy getting on. Why were they saying Italian? Well, they, they probably didn't know any Italians. So the easiest thing to say about a dark haired man you didn't hear speak was, well, he was probably an Italian guy. So I can't imagine it was one of our guys doing that. It must be an Italian. Not, you're not being offensive about Italian. You don't know any Italians. They're not of your world. So in a way, it's a safe thing to say that it was, Ita you don't know an Italian. So they just become the other group. I'm not, as in, I'm not being uh, impolite about anyone. It, it's just the Italian. I don't even, you know, I don't know Italians. So it, that's what it feels like. It's very much that concept of othering.
I don't know them. We can say things about them and it's not even really rude. They're not, they're never going to hear it. It's not part of our world. It's chilling how prevalent this is because I think what is often missing from the conversation about rights is how polite bigotry can be and how, Absolutely. how systemic these things are and how it seems to be, you know, it's not, it's nothing new, sadly, and fake news is nothing new. It's just a phenomenon that we name differently again and again and again. And I think, your, Absolutely, yeah. I think your point about looking into the, what happened in terms of Titanic, the event versus Titanic, the cultural event that's represented is I remember in Cameron's film, and I think this is again, the, what, the kind of effect of what kind of putting something within a Hollywood narrative, what that has on how we then view the event is that Titanic is very much a product of its time as every cultural, like particularly fiction or based on fiction, it says more about the values of that then rather than um, of the time they're portraying. And what I remember distinctly from Titanic, Cameron's film, is the idea of everyone was very sort of placid, like, oh, it's the iceberg. Oh, and again, that like, it's not that bad. But then things escalating very quickly because that's the nature of even an epic film with like, I remember, you know, at the time, that's a really long duration for a running time. Um, yeah. But not getting across, mm. you know, and, and then this escalation and then this like power of um, fighting back and that, that being in a very American thing of like these people, you know, everyone has this sense of themselves to, to push back. And again, none of this is criticism. It's, it's observation. Mm. I, want to, I want to point out but the jarring effect of that between what would have actually happened. But the fact that it blows my mind is that this took, like you say, what, two and a half, three hours for it to sink. Yes. It just feels really long, doesn't it? And and it's it's hard not to put yourself in their shoes, which I think is part of the enduring power and value of it. I mean, I think there's a value in doing that. Mm. I think it's very easy to get trapped up in, to get caught up in prescribed thinking on it. But I think if you can avoid that, it becomes a sort of useful thought experiment to to imagine what that would have been like to have compassion towards those who were on board and what was happening to that. But I, I always came to it with that idea, you know, we've got to be compassionate to these people on board, regardless of the way they're portrayed, even if they did something stupid on board. I don't think that sums up a life that you panic, you don't know. People have all sorts of pressures on their lives. You know, there are people, people made the point at the time, especially for some of the migrants, if they were, say, a single man traveling on board, it's quite likely that them dying would be utterly devastating for the family they left behind. Utterly devastating. So when a man understandably panics about his own life and, say, tries to jump in a lifeboat, if that's what he did, and there aren't that many who did that kind of thing, but let's just say he did, it might be that he's being completely rational in that choice because he's not just afraid for himself, he's got a family thousands of miles away who completely rely on him, who are going to be utterly emotionally and financially devastated by his death you know and 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 then there's a then there's a a wealthy man or a, a wealthy woman sitting next to him with a, a dog on her lap or something you know do you know what i mean it's like there's uh, how you know what kind of a judgment can we apply to the man who jumps in a lifeboat to save himself i mean <laughs> it's the the fundamental problem is there aren't enough lifeboats not that there are not that people want to live too much <laughs> you know that's the <laughs> 
coming back ever so slightly to your comment about women and children, the thing that I've always grown up with, uh, being someone who's had access to being able to travel by plane, is affix your own oxygen mask before helping anyone else. And that's something that people have to sort of get over. But it's true, you actually can't help anyone if you don't have... Uh, and, you know, the scarcity that was so apparent and and the rush and the panic and how that, you know, as soon as... Because it sounds to me that everything was very calm because no one thought it was really going to happen. And then as soon as it was apparent that it was... Yeah. Well, I'll give you a very interesting example of something that was said, that was said about them. Here's an interesting way in which uh, things get distorted and twisted by kind of social pressures. There was an article that came out that we looked at a lot. And the headline was, um, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember word for word, but the headline was essentially, um, in China, it's not women and children first. Okay, but th so the first reaction to that is, oh, this is going to be a sort of racist story about the Chinese men and how they would have pushed women out of the way because that's what Chinese people do. So in other words, they've been taken, their example has been taken. Well, first of all, that didn't happen. We know now that Chinese guys didn't do that. So that's not true. But secondly, there's an interesting twist to the way that this story got written because when you examine the details, sometimes that headline gets reprinted and you know, it's an example of racism or it's an example of the way that Rhett got spoken about, the you know how it happened. Here's the interesting thing. That quote was actually from a suffragettes movement. And here's an interesting part of Titanic that is not spoken about much. There were suffragettes at the time, there were women's rights advocates, who said this whole women and children first thing is, is not, it shouldn't be that way. If, if we're asking for the right to vote and to be financially independent, we shouldn't be asking for men to, to die to save us. And in fact, what that, the original quote that was being but what the, what the point of that, the, the, the words that were being said there were that women don't have to be rescued with children before men. And look, there are countries where they're already doing this. It was actually a point to say, hey, look, in, in, there's no natural order to this. In fact, in China, they don't even think about it in those terms. They weren't actually making a point that was critical of China. They were making a point that was saying, actually, why, I'm not sure why we stick to this assumption that adult women should survive more than adult men. Um, so again, another layer, layer of complexity and a story that got replayed then across papers in the US as being a story about the fact that Chinese men just essentially using this example of the Chinese men on Titanic to say Chinese are different. See, the exclu exclusion laws are, are necessary because look, they're not like us at all. Chinese men would not save women. How crazy is that? But that wasn't the point at all. And the point wasn't being in fact, was coming from an American women's rights organization who was saying, oh, there is another model. We should think about that, maybe. So it's it's fascinating the way that it got twisted and used. And and you're absolutely right. It, at the time, Titanic was used to tell a certain story about society. And it was it was a lot of that was to do with heroes and villains, what it means to be a good man and all those kind of things uh, and a good woman. It was later used to tell, I think, by the by the. Well, I can go one step later. It was there was a Nazi film of the uh, of Titanic, in which and and this is interesting. It's one of the only examples of Titanic that forefronts ethnicity, because what they did is showed that Anglo-Saxon, that the 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 European, not European, the British and American men essentially uh, don't care about other races. 
They just let them die. So interestingly, the Nazis made a film that was <laughs> bizarrely uh, sort of on point. They did it com for completely the wrong reason. But, you know, their, their point was, look at those nations. They, 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 they don't care. They accuse us of being racist. Look at them. You know, they just let people die based on based on race. Uh, in, in you know in their in their terminology so it's crazy the way it got reframed in the 60s uh, there was a different spin on it it became much more about class and, and all the rest of it Cameron was interested in that as well he made a story that that talked about class and that was something that he was fascinated by interestingly Cameron did a lot of work in reintroducing other ethnic groups in the background I think uh, you you see a Chinese guy in the background in a few scenes he he put someone in there he shot a scene of the Chinese guy that we now know is Fong Long on a piece of debris being rescued by lifeboat 14 that we know because you know we we met cameron and talked to him about this scene um it was the inspiration for the jack and rose scene so he had been fascinated by that, that chinese story he actually ended up cutting it for editorial reasons and i think partly because it was a kind of mirror of the jack and rose final scene so odd to have two people picked up off a piece of wood by the same lifeboat it just seemed repetitious um, it's funny because I get asked occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally I'll be asked, I'll, somebody will say, and it's so awful that Cameron, you know, cut that Chinese guy from the story. And I think, well, hold on a second. Cameron shot that scene. <laughs> he cut his own scene. He wasn't cutting Chinese from the story. But but I think, you know, from my impression of spe from speaking to him is that he is more and more interested in these stories. I think if... Uh, I don't know, I don't speak for him, but I'm sure if he made the film now that there'd be more of those stories in it because it's something that in 95, 96, when he was shooting it, you know, he, he was he was already intrigued by those stories, the less well-known stories. I think he'd probably give them even more prominence now if he shot the film. And the fact that he wanted to be involved in our film, I think speaks to the idea that he was, he thinks there are important stories that haven't been told, you know, and there are people who've been missed out of that Titanic story. Absolutely. And in terms of Cameron's activities, even after Titanic, it's clear that this is something that he is has a continual ongoing fascination with and shouldn't be seen yeah. in isolation as only this one thing that when we look at, uh, I think, looking at Cameron's Titanic, we have to understand it as uh, a, a love story. You know, fundamentally, it's about Jack and Rose and, uh, you know, everything's tearing them apart, including this horrendous um, accident. It's not actually meant to sort of cover the accident completely. But unfortunately, given uh, not that long ago, the, the real life Titanic speech marks of the Costa Concordia and kind of. Yes. But how how is Cameron responsible for the lack of uh, education <laughs> around all of these issues? You know, I don't think he is. And I no. wonder again you know, making a film like that now, I think there is, as we are increasingly globalised, like, it's amazing that Marconi and how Titanic became the first sort of world news event, like you say, and that now we are even more globalised uh, for the benefit of the listener. Arthur and I are talking to each other between Shanghai and Glasgow right now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think there's more of a... At least this is my slightly, possibly slightly naive, but very hopeful uh, idea that despite an awful lot of um, prevalence of anti-Asian hate and, and similar, there is a, a more awareness of globalism and interest in each other's stories mm. and access, mm. being able to access each other's stories and cultures in a way that wasn't quite um, dominant mode previously.
Yeah, and I mean, I think we we were. That's a very interesting point. I mean, there's a there's a there's an interesting moment in the film where where Stephen goes to San Francisco and he meets Grant Din, the our researcher there, and he's he speaks to Judy Judy Young, who talks about the Angel Island experience of Chinese immigrants and being held in detention camps there, and we show because because we go to this subject of the issue of the Chinese just sort of not giving up, you know, not retreating, they're pushing into, leaning into these immigration laws, you know, constantly breaking them, finding ways around them, which for a long, long time was framed in terms of, by by, by older generations of, of Chinese immigrants and people even in China have complicated feelings about that. Well, it was their law, I don't know what, should we have broken? You know, it, it, of course, these are complicated feelings you have and that there are feelings about, grandparents and parents and um but there is now thank goodness a sort of movement that's leaning into this and saying no 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 we reject that utterly the you know we we should be proud of that of that generation because if they hadn't done that so persistently and revealed the absurdity of those laws for the 60 years or so that they were in place there's a good chance they would still have been there you know that that, that we and that, and that, you know, not so many people would have stood up to laws, you know, just a couple of years ago that targeted predominantly Muslim countries, people trying to get into the U.S. Exactly the same issue. And what's interesting is when I was trying to describe that, we were looking for footage to show of how that idea gets expanded. And we got protesters on the streets in New York. So we thought that was great. Oh, it you know, you see these protesters on the street. We put them in. I think we got the clip from AP or something. And... Um, Several people have said to me, oh, you know, we really like the uh, the anti-Asian hate uh, protest you got. It's really important to like expand the idea. And I have to point out every time when we started editing this film, no one was talking about anti-Asian hate. Those are not anti-Asian hate protests. Those are anti-Muslim ban protests. There's a lot of ethnically Chinese or let's say, uh, you know, um, East Asian people clearly in the crowds. But that it's not an anti-Asian hate rally. It's an anti-Muslim ban, ban rally. When we began this project, no one globally was talking about this issue, except, of course, in, in China, we knew about it. And, and obviously, Asian communities all over the world knew about it. So people now, people will even say, oh, you made this film to talk about these issues. No, it wasn't. Of course, I knew we were going to touch on some of these issues. We didn't have any idea it was going to become such a big story. Just, you know, in the lead up to, to in well, in the last couple of years, essentially during in this, this, you know, the last couple of years when this issue has really come to the fore and people are beginning to talk about it a lot more. Mm. It always makes me sort of, uh, I guess laugh is the right word because I do go through where people see uh, people in protests and think, oh, they must be protesting for themselves. Like allyship and solidarity doesn't exist. <laughs> Or like uh, combined, um, oh, combined interest. Yeah, yes. yeah. I I love to end on a note of solidarity. So I think, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been it's been wonderful speaking to you. This has been a, a really fun. And thanks again to Arthur Jones for coming on the show to talk about the six, which uh, we yeah we'll put links to where you can find out about that movie in the show notes. So we'll end this episode with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think your listeners will enjoy as well. Uh, my recommendation for this week is uh, Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which I went to go and see at the cinema just yesterday. I thought it was quite lovely. I think 
Wes Anderson movies don't get mixed reviews, so to say, but they do get uh, reviews that range from um, very enthusiastic to modestly enthusiastic, and this one seems to be getting generally sort of like the uh, modestly enthusiastic end of things, and I can then see why, you know, it's got this very arch framing device where it's, you know, a series of stories about this fictional uh, newspaper based in, you know, a small fictional French town, and, you know, it's very whimsical. But I personally find it to be very, very funny. I thought that the three segments work on, like, varied and interesting, and they look, obviously, they look gorgeous because Wes Anderson is pretty much incapable of making an un- an unbeautiful image. Uh, but I was really taken with all of them. The whole cast is great. The the segment that focuses on a story being told by Jeffrey Wright's character was, for me, the best in terms of the, the because you know, it is simultaneously the most madcap and the most emotionally resonant. But I I think you know there's there's not a false note in the whole thing. I think it's just a really lovely, funny, gorgeous movie that if you can see. In a cinema, if it is safe for your, you to do so, then you absolutely should, because you know Wes Anderson, for all of the things that people kind of knock him for, and I can totally understand that. You know the, the preciousness of his work, the tweeness that some people see in his work. He is one of the few stylists in American cinema who is still able to make movies on a sort of significant budget, and even this one, like it's only like twenty five million or something, so pretty pretty low by most people's standards but you know Wes Anderson with 25 million is worth more than you know the Russo brothers with 500 million if you want to get indelible delightful images so that is Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch which is currently in theatres and if you can see it as I say you should endeavour to do so. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Play FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.